Well, good morning again. I hope you have your Bibles this morning. And if you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. This morning is um, our conclusion to our time in Habakkuk. Been in here for about 10 weeks. And um, I know many of you thought it was impossible to do it under six months. But here we are, two and a half. And so um, we have been uh, journeying through Habakkuk. Hopefully it's been a a beneficial book uh, for you and your walk with the Lord. And uh, as we have um, begun to understand what it means for God to be uh, active in the world around us uh, amidst the evil and the sin and the suffering that we find in our life and in the world. And so and that is what Habakkuk has, um, has found out, as we'll see this morning as we come to this very beautiful conclusion uh, to this short book in the Old Testament. Um, not to give a long, uh, by any stretch, recap, but we are, uh, we are where we are as we finish Habakkuk. We're going to see that nothing has changed as we turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 17 through 19. Uh, this is kind of the, the second part of last week, and even the song we're just saying, which is from Psalm 130, uh, from the depths of woe, is that what it's called, I believe, um, is we see that even in verse 16, as, as Habakkuk is kind of um, coming full circle, if you will, or really 180, that if you go from uh, chapter 1 there, Habakkuk started off the book with two complaints, and he was, he was very hot, he was very perturbed, he was very bothered uh, by all the evil that he saw around him, especially in Israel, and then they got, and where, where was God? And God was clearly there. God was clearly very present. And then when he realized God was present, then reconciling how God could use the evil uh, likes of the Babylonians. And so God has just been, uh, nothing has changed in Habakkuk. And that's an important point here. Uh, God hasn't done anything different. He hasn't done anything for Habakkuk. Uh, Israel is still the, the same state they're in in chapter 1. Uh, the context has not changed. The circumstances has not changed. But the prophet has come to know the Lord even more. He has come to, to hear from the Lord, hear who God is, and how He is very involved in all of His creation. And so this is kind of where we find ourselves in this, past, this week and last week. And Habakkuk had two responses. Ultimately, whenever the Lord says that, that I am active, I am right here, I am, I am working in the midst of you, I am using the Babylonians, and then I'm going to judge the Babylonians. Uh, and then we see Habakkuk's response to his prayer beginning in chapter 3. But then here, the, starting in verse 16, he really has two like real responses. One is that he is going to be patient. He is going to wait. He says in verse 16, I hear my body trembles, my lips quiver, the sound rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And so he says, Lord, I am hearing who you are, and my response is that I am going to wait. I am going to wait for you, because I know that you are going to do what you say you're going to do, and I'm going to wait. And so that's what we looked at last week, and this morning he, he gives another yet. Uh, there in verse 18, he says, yet I will rejoice. And so he's going to wait, and he's going to rejoice and so let us pray and then we're going to read Habakkuk 3 17 through 19 Lord thank you for this morning thank you for a chance uh, that we can gather and we can gather around your word and that we can um, desire to hear from you Lord and so we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us 
And Lord, you would um, give us the encouragement and the strength and the confidence and the hope that you gave Habakkuk and that you gave Paul and that you gave so many who've gone before us and that you've given us throughout our journey with you, Lord. And maybe we need to be reminded this morning of the hope that we have in Christ. We will wait on you and we will rejoice in you. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Let us read these uh, three verses here that are uh, some of the, the probably more quoted verses in even the Bible. And you may not be familiar with Habakkuk chapter 3, but as we read this, these will sound familiar. This is a beautiful passage of whenever life is real, whenever life happens, when life is difficult. Uh, this is a passage that we often find ourselves. So Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation." God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. And so what we see here, we get to the very end of, of this, this book, of this, prophet, this minor prophet that we call Habakkuk, these short three chapters, and a lot has happened, and hopefully you've been with us these past uh, ten weeks, and we've seen all the stuff that Habakkuk has dealt with, and this back and forth between the prophet and God, and, and as we said from the beginning, it wasn't that Habakkuk really doubted the Lord, it wasn't that he was a faithless prophet, he was a faithful prophet, he wasn't questioning God, but he was bringing his questions to the Lord, and the Lord graciously answered, the Lord helped him to understand that he was very involved and very active in the world, even in the midst of suffering, pain, and evil. And so, so the, the prophet has, has, has he's, he's, he's believing this, he's holding this to be true now. So we see this kind of 180 degree shift in his demeanor. And so now he is, he's not doubting the Lord, he's not questioning the Lord, he's not bringing his questions to the Lord. His response is that he will wait for the Lord and that he will rejoice in the Lord. But before we get to verse 18, where he rejoices in the Lord and his joy is found in the Lord, let's look at verse 17 for a moment. Because it seems just like a, just a summary, right? It just seems like he's going to put a bunch of things together. He's, okay, what bad things could be? Let me put these bad things together. And to a degree that's true, but there is some, like, like we've said almost every week in Habakkuk, there is beautiful imagery. There is great intentionality, as with all Scripture. As we, we realize that it's not just words put together by man so many years ago, and we try to make the best of it, that all of God's Word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, so we see this beautiful truth in verse 17, that there's actually a, um, there's a lot of organization to it. There's, there's an intentional point when it starts with the fig tree and it ends with the herd. There is this ascension of severity, if you will, that he starts with, though the fig tree should not blossom, this minor thing in the life of Israel, and he works his way up to something that is, that is the worst of this whole list. So the list gets worse. And so he starts with the, I can kind of deal with it, to I can't live under this. And so let's start real quick with figs there. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom. 
Now, if you've read through Scripture much, and if you're a student of God's Word, you know the fig tree keeps popping up throughout uh, the Bible. And specifically, there are two things that the fig tree is, um, is, is known for. One is maybe you haven't heard before, but it's a delicacy. The fig was in Israel. It was something they liked to eat. It was their, you know, uh, their oatmeal cream pie, right? It was something they wanted to grab and they could enjoy. And it was something that was a, a treat for them to be able to, to eat and to, uh, to, uh, to take. And so, in a sense, the, the, the fig represented this, this, this convenience, this treat, this something that wasn't needed in their life, something they couldn't not live without, but it was something that they enjoyed. But also, as you look at the, the end times and eschatology, you look at the fig tree, it comes back into Scripture. We also see it in Jesus' ministry. It also represents a, the day-to-day life of the Hebrews. It represents the normal life, so to speak. And so, uh, so these figs represent it kind of, if you, if you will, when he said the fig tree not blossoming, it kind of points us to something almost like personal inconveniences. So again, this, this isn't like major upsetting of the life. It's sitting uh doom and gloom but even though in the day doesn't work out like i thought it should have you been there have you lived that life have have you gotten to you know maybe even an hour up you're awake and just things aren't starting off right or you're halfway through the day you can't wait till work's over or you get home at the end of the day you look back at the day and say man it's just been a bad day because of blank these inconveniences in our life even in the church, right? You know, what are some inconveniences that we could experience? What if we send a message out next Saturday, next Sunday morning at 10 o'clock says the air conditioner's out? You know, what's, what's our attendance look like next Sunday at 1030, right? I'm probably not looking at this group. Hopefully I am, right? I'm going to give you the benefit. And these inconveniences. And so these aren't things that are going to disrupt our life, but they are these personal inconveniences. And he says, though these things happen, though the fig does not blossom, and then he continues, he says, though nor the fruit be on the vines. And so now he turns his attention to the vine, which specifically he's referring to grapes. And so though there is a shortage of grapes, now though we like to eat grapes in our society today, we like to go to Walmart and get grapes, what he is referring to here is wines. It's as though the wine, there is a shortage of wine. And we know in Scripture that wine means lots of things, uh, especially to the Hebrews. Uh, it's a picture of prosperity. It's a picture of the blessing of the Lord, because wine is almost always associated with, uh, with a blessing from God. Uh, it is associated with celebration and the joy of life. And so it says even whenever we can't celebrate, even whenever we can't rejoice in something, even whenever there's nothing to, uh, to, to party over, if you will. Uh, I say often one of my favorite billboards in recent years, was Bennigan's, if you remember that restaurant from so many years ago, that had a billboard that said, may you always have a reason to celebrate. And so what Habakkuk's saying here is, even when there's no reason to celebrate, even whenever things are getting so bad that it's not just the inconveniences uh, that, that are hindering us, but even whenever the, 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 the vine is empty, whenever there is no wine in the cellar, whenever the blessing of the Lord does not really seem to be upon us, we're going to wait for God and rejoice in God. And so we see him making this major shift in his mind and his heart to, to where is the Lord, to God. Even when things don't work out, I'm going to look to you and I'm going to trust you. When there are no figs and there are no grapes, and he continues, he says, and the produce of the olive fail. 
when the produce of the olive fell and what the olive produces, especially uh, that was needed for the culture of the Hebrews in uh, ancient Near East, was oil. And this oil, this olive oil uh, w- was used for cooking and for even lighting their, their lanterns and providing them light whenever the sun went down. So it became a, as you see, he's kind of, uh, he's upgrading his, his issues, if you will. He is, he, is, he is saying, Lord, when things get worse, so now whenever we can't cook our food and we can't light the way and we have uh, and things just get dark in our life and things are not easy for us anymore and things become even more difficult, we are still going to wait quietly for you and rejoice in you and take our joy in you. And even in our uh, even in our current economy now, we understand shortages. We understand comforts that we take for granted that are, uh, that are no longer available at times. And we kind of go in and out of these shortages. And so it's even whenever there's a shortage, even whenever things aren't like they should be, we're still going to look to you. And so it's okay, that's enough, right? We've taken away the, the figs, we've taken away the wine, and we've taken away the, 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 the oil for the lamps, and we've taken away uh, the, the ability to cook. But he says it's going to get worse. Or if it gets worse, or though it gets worse, we're still going to look to you. Not only the fig not blossoming, not only the fruit not being on the vine, not only the produce failing of the olive, but in the fields yield no food. And so when you look to the field in the ancient Near East, you're always looking to grain. And grain was, was the everyday diet of the, uh, the people of Israel and their surrounding neighbors and all of those in the world at that time. So whenever even the whole food structure shuts down, whenever, our, whenever it becomes difficult for us to even know what we're going to do day to day, when the grain is not there, and the grain that we use for every aspect of our food, whenever it is not producing and the fields are not yielding food, and there's still this element they have stuff you know, in, in storage, right? But when the field is not producing, I'm still going to look to you. I'm still going to quietly wait I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord, though all of these these six clauses hinge on that word though in verse 17, though this were to happen. And some would even say that it is a picture of not just that it might happen, but that it was happening under the Babylonian rule. As the Babylonians were coming in and attacking Israel and the surrounding neighbors, that these things right here were taking place. So whether it was a reality that he was living in or whether it was a reality that he was preparing for, he was ready for these things. He was ready for the disruption of the normal rhythm of life whenever food was no longer widely available, when they couldn't cook it or light their way and they couldn't have their wine to celebrate and to enjoy um, the day-to-day life and their their personal inconveniences. But then it gets a little worse. He says... And the flock be cut off from the fold. The flock to be cut off from the fold and there to be no herd in the stalls. I feel like I missed something right there. Produce, the olive fail, and the fields are yielding. I'm sorry, my, my, my brain just skipped. Y'all, y'all bear with me here. And so we see this, this picture of this grain, we see this picture of the fields. And specifically in those fields, uh, kind of the fields and the grain are, are somewhat connected there, but it's a picture that all food is now no longer available. It's this picture of provision being shaken. 
So whenever, whenever the prophet is going through this, he's coming to a point where now there, there is no provision, there is no food. Like we have nothing. We are, we are left hungry. Because even then, we will look to the Lord. Even then, we will trust Him. Whether it's their everyday rhythm being messed up or, their, or their, all their substance of food. And even for this specifically, as you would think about Israel as a country, it was even a picture of starvation. When the fields were, were, were to be found empty and the, the storehouses to be found empty, it was a picture of starvation. They didn't call another country to bring us in more food. They couldn't go on Amazon and buy more food. They didn't do they didn't have all the conveniences that we have today. Whenever it was gone, it was gone. So it says, though that happens, though the, 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 the flocks be cut off and though the fields yield no food and the produce and the olive fail that all these things be we will look to and trust the lord and then he turns to the animals as though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls and kind of comes to the to the worst part of this progression if you will and this was the the largest economic disruption in this whole thing that they use animals for everything. They use animals for their skin. They use animals for milk. They use some of the animals for meat. And so with the, the fields gone and the, the olive oil gone and the, the, the grapes gone, now it says even if you take our herds, even if there is complete, total economic collapse, even if all, everything we know in life is no longer... We're still going to look to the Lord. How can you say that, right? How can you know, we, we can read Scripture and we can think this is from, you know, 3,500 years ago. And we get kind of, it gets kind of lost on us. But how can we echo the same words of Habakkuk here? If everything in my life fails, if everything, everything from the, the smallest inconveniences that, that upset me and drive me crazier than it should to every aspect of my life, to my provision and my job and my family and my health and the health of my family and my sanity, if everything, if it all collapses, if everything that I know that is to be good is no longer good, can I still trust the Lord? Can I still wait and be patient on Him? Can I still rejoice in Him? Can I still take joy in the God of my salvation? Habakkuk says yes. And any one of these would be difficult enough, right? You take any one of these, the figs, the grapes, the olives, the grain, the fields, the herds, any one of these would be difficult enough to find contentment in. I mean, let one thing happen in your life that you weren't expecting, and are you going to be content or are you going to grumble? I mean, more than likely going to grumble, right? But imagine all six of them Imagine your life as you know it collapsing. All these things happen. And the, the people of Israel were experiencing this both now and it was about to get worse for the next five or six decades as they waited on the Lord. And they lived through this. And the remnant of Israel, the faithful, the elect of God, would not lose hope as they continued to look to the source and strength of their hope that was found outside of their circumstances. So how do we do this as well? How do we not just live through adversity, but how do we thrive through adversity? It takes more than the American spirit. It takes more than strapping uh, up your boots, 
Digging your heels in only gets you so far. Determination and sure will can help you survive difficulty, but it takes much more to find joy in the midst of trials, tribulations, and tears. A couple quick books I'd like us to flip to. One we go to often is James chapter 1. Just a couple verses in James 1. Because this is not just a theme of Habakkuk. As we look to the, the difficulties of life and ultimately look to our strength and our anchor in the Lord. But James chapter 2, I mean James chapter 1 verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet what? Trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So count of joy, it says, when you meet difficulty, when you meet trials, when you meet tribulations, when, you meet, when, you're, when you're tested, when you encounter that which does not seem good in this life, count it joy. Don't count it a mistake. Don't count like God slipped up and let something occur and happen in your life that he didn't see coming, but count it joy because it's going to produce in you steadfastness. A couple books over, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll just start in verse 31. Just such a, a beautiful passage here. Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So in the midst of our difficulty, Christ is there interceding for us. And he says in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through our American spirit. No. We are more than conquerors through our sense of ingenuity. No. We are more than conquerors by our life's experience and our ability to fix our own problems. It's silly, I realize. But we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So we are more than conquerors through Christ. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we're honest, isn't that what we feel whenever we're in the midst of tribulation, 
when, they're, when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the midst of a part of our life where we feel like we're disconnected from the Lord, that something has disconnected us from God? Which has nothing, nothing has the ability to do that. No, no change of circumstance, no change of health, no change of, of anything, no change of prosperity. No change of your standing or your career. Nothing can separate us. Not even your own ill perception of yourself changes how much God loves you. Because you are His. But we are conquerors through Christ. The source of a believer's hope and strength is the Lord. No, that's simple, right? John, that's elementary. That's a Sunday school answer is Jesus. And it's not that we lack understanding that Christ is our strength. We just like remembering sometimes. We get in the middle of life, we get in the middle of difficulty. The figs start to fail and the grapes start to rot up. The animals start to die and the fields start to be parched. And we look at our life and we're distressed. We're overwhelmed. And we forget that our hope and strength is in God. Our hope and strength is in Christ. We are conquerors through Him. We overcome through Him. Habakkuk says, The Lord is His strength. And the Lord is our strength. And actually, it is our weakness that God is looking for. It is our weakness that God is most glorified. Go with me to 2 Corinthians. Just a couple books over there, if you will. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I thought I wrote the wrong reference down. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's try that one. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start there in verse 8. Paul is talking about this thorn the Lord has given him in his life that's created difficulty, and pain, and suffering. He says there in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should leave me. So, Lord, take this suffering away. But in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of what? Of his strengths? of his ability, of his accomplishments, no, of his weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So these trials that we find ourselves in, these difficulties we find ourselves in, these moments of suffering that we find ourselves in, even if it's for weeks, months, years, even if it's for, you can't remember how long you've suffered in a, in a certain way, it is our weaknesses that Christ is glorified. 
He's not glorified in our strength. If we could do it, we wouldn't need Jesus. If we could do it, people could look at us and say, wow, look at John, how great he is. But it is in our weakness that Christ is exalted. The source of a believer's hope and strength is Christ. The hope that we have in weakness is Christ. And so whenever Habakkuk, whenever he comes to the end of of this book that he is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, though it all falls apart, though when the wheels fall off the car, (laughs) though whenever everything goes exactly the opposite the way we think it should go, and we read last week, um, two weeks ago, whenever our, our graduates were recognized, we read Jeremiah 29, 11, right? It's a great verse. And why is it a great verse? Because it's in God's Word. But it's a verse that's often misaligned. I saw a friend of mine this morning online quoted Jeremiah 29, 11. I just couldn't wait till he put it in context and explained it, but it wasn't. So when you throw Jeremiah 29, 11 out there, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to, to good towards you and to prosper you, to give you a future and a hope. We like to think that as God's promises on us today, that things are going to work out. If we can just get past this issue in our life, right? If we can just get past this hump, if we can just get past this cancer or this difficulty or this job issue or this financial uh, problem we're having, we just get over this, then God's got wonderful things in store. And He may. But the good that he promises is not the good circumstances in life that many people look for. The good he promises us is Christ. The source of our hope and strength is not good circumstances. It's not a good bank account. It's not good health. It's not a good uh, checkup. It's not a good report. It's not good rapport. It is simply Christ is that which is good for us and which God promises and God delivers you may or may not have experienced searing pain and suffering in life yet some would say that either you're in a storm you're on the other side of a storm or a storm is coming into your life and sounds a little dismal but it's kind of like life right if you live long enough you're going to experience hurt and pain and difficulty you will experience it in one way or Another, Jesus promises us. He says, you will have troubles in this life. But he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. But even now, whether we have experienced it or not, whether we're in it or not, we witness so much evil and vileness around us, around the world, in our own country, in our community, and even close to home. We see sin and suffering The consequences of sin on a daily basis. Suffering and sin abound. And that's today. And what about tomorrow? Your news feed's not going to get better tomorrow. Problems aren't going to just be fixed overnight. Our only hope is Christ. One last passage, and we'll wrap up and pray. Go with me to Psalm chapter, Psalm 40. It's almost an echo of Habakkuk. It's almost as if the same author inspired Psalm and Habakkuk. Who would have thunk it? 
if I can find it. Psalm 40, first three verses. David is apparently the writer of this psalm. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. When you go back to Habakkuk, you see the same prayer. You see the same response that Habakkuk is going to quietly wait on the Lord and he is going to sing his praises to the Lord. And there in verse 19, he says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And there's this picture in, in the, the world of, of deer, if you will, that they have sure footing in difficult places. And so he's going to make me like the deer who has this sure footing. And what is this sure footing? Habakkuk knew in part. He knew that God would provide. He knew the Messiah was going to come. He knew God was going to redeem His people. But we know in full. We know Christ. We can look to Christ and He is our sure footing. And so as we walk through this life and its difficult days, as we face the struggles that we face, that we seem like we're all alone, may we look to Christ. May we join with Habakkuk and may we join with David. May we join with Paul who all say the same. That we will quietly wait on the Lord. And that we will rejoice in Him. And that our joy is not found in the circumstances of this life. But our joy is found in the certainty of Christ. And as believers... As the remnant of God, as those who have truly looked to Christ, we should navigate these difficult times in the world around us in such a vastly different way than those without hope. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we come to the table as those with hope. And so I encourage you to be reminded this morning that we are a people of hope. And that we would talk to our coworkers, our friends, our family, and that we would talk to them as people of hope, pointing them to our great hope. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your, your great grace and your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that you have revealed to us Christ and that you have sent Christ. And then in our weakness, he is made strong. Thank you, Lord, that you bid us come. And so help us not to be overwhelmed with the circumstances of this world, with the news that we hear, of that which we deal with on a day-to-day basis. May we be overwhelmed with your hope and your strength, your providence. May we look to you. 
As we come to this table, Lord, may we be reminded of all that you've done for us in Christ. As we sing, Lord, may we sing as Habakkuk sang, with praises on his lips. And we sing as the psalmist sang, Lord, to your greatness. Help us to respond in faith to your word by your spirit this morning. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.